This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, Crisis in the Caribbean, we focus this week on the fallout from the assassination of Haiti's president and widespread protests in Cuba. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Haiti and Cuba both have populations of about 11 million. Currently, Creole-speaking Haiti and Spanish-speaking Cuba are undergoing one of the most disturbing periods of political unrest in recent decades. Historically, waves of migration from both island countries have led to the creation of large diaspora communities in the United States, especially in the state of Florida, who wield significant influence in national politics. Therefore, when political, economic, and social turmoil unfolds, the United States must contend not only with a key foreign policy issue in the Western Hemisphere, but also a domestic political one, given the potential for an influx of refugees to the United States and their impact on the contentious immigration debate and U.S. electoral politics. Take the case of Cuba. The large Cuban-American diaspora in the state of Florida represents an influential voting bloc that Republican and Democratic candidates alike court in national elections. Analysts say that the Cuban-American vote in the swing state of Florida may even affect the outcome of a presidential election. On July 7 in Haiti, President Jovenel Moise was assassinated by unidentified armed gunmen at his home outside of the capital, Port-au-Prince. VOA reports that the head of the security at the Haitian presidential palace has been taken into custody as part of the investigation of the assassination, which has plunged the impoverished country into political chaos. National Police Chief Leon Charles said 18 Colombians and three Haitians have been arrested in connection with the attack, including Christian Emmanuel Sanon a Haitian-born man based in the state of Florida who police believe may be the mastermind behind the plot to kill Moise. U.S. President Joe Biden has dispatched a special delegation to Haiti to assist with the investigation. The brazen murder of the sitting head of state has rocked the country, which is among the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. Haiti's government has struggled for years to provide basic services, leaving criminal gangs to fill the power vacuum. Four days later in Cuba on July 11th, Thousands of Cubans took to the streets to protest shortages of food, fuel, electricity and medicine, as well as Havana's mismanagement of the coronavirus pandemic, which has exacerbated the worsening living conditions. Analysts say the demonstrations were among the largest and most significant in decades. The New York-based Sufan Center reports many of the protesters called for freedom from Cuba's communist government, which tried to muzzle the voices of protesters by cutting off communications throughout the country. Rather than taking responsibility for some of the deteriorating conditions, the Cuban government placed blame for growing unrest on the United States and cited the long-running trade embargo and economic sanctions ratcheted up under the Trump administration for causing the unrest. Cuban security forces have detained over 100 people, including well-known dissidents, human rights activists, and members of Cuba's opposition movement. In response to the unprecedented demonstrations, U.S. President Joe Biden called Cuba's government quote, an authoritarian regime, and stated that the U.S., quote, stands with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom. VOA reports that Cuba announced it was temporarily lifting restrictions on the amount of food and medicine travelers could bring into the country in an apparent small concession to demands by protesters who took to the streets. Well, with us to discuss the state of play and fallout from the chaos in Cuba and Haiti, as well as implications for U.S. policy, are two regional experts 
William Leo Grand is Associate Vice Provost for Academic Affairs in the Department of Government at American University here in Washington. He is among the foremost experts on U.S.-Cuba relations. And Eduardo Gamara, he is professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University. He specializes in Latin American politics and has substantial experience in Haiti. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Professor Gamara, let me begin with you. We have a lot to discuss. Let's start with Haiti. Talk about the political, economic, and social backdrop to this horrific assassination, if you will. I think it's important to start any analysis of Haiti by going back to the transition to democracy, if you will, in the 1980s, with the end of the Duvalier dictatorship, a very long, long lasting dictatorship, father, son, that raised a lot of expectations that Haiti would become democratic and that would follow the wave of democracy that you had elsewhere in the region, especially in South America. But unlike the rest of Latin America, Haiti has had a very difficult time in trying to construct any kind of democratic institutionality. It was interrupted by coups in the early 1990s that led to an American intervention to restore Aristide to power. And then subsequently, we found out that Aristide was uh, not as good as we had thought he was. And we then had to kind of have an international force to fill in a vacuum left by Aristide in the early part of this decade. And then on top of that, you have a country that is in the Caribbean and is extraordinarily susceptible to natural disasters, earthquakes and hurricanes and floodings that occur almost on a regular basis, except for the earthquake, of course. The big earthquake of 2010 transformed everything. Just as Haiti was somewhat getting off the ground under President Preval, this earthquake devastated not only the infrastructure in Haiti and killed over 200,000 people, but it also had a dramatic impact on the economy and on politics. The result was this very convoluted last decade of politics, first headed by a singer, uh, Michel Martelly, as president, and then this recurrent pattern of the inability to hold elections on time for parliament, which leads to power vacuum where you have a president but no parliament. And then, of course, the whole issue of succession whereby in 2016 there was an election. Jovenel Moaiz won the election handily, but there were accusations of fraud in the election. So this ended up essentially to an enormous confrontation that called for an interim government for a year. And so Really, when you look at the source of the contemporary discussion, it has to do with the claims by Moise that because he had begun his term in 2017, his term didn't end until 2022, whereas the opposition claimed that his term had begun in 2016 and therefore his term ended in February. But that's sort of the superficiality of it. The really underlying conditions, you know, of the absolute lack of institutions, the atomization at the level of society, a predatory private sector, you know, that really has contributed not to building up the political system, but to bringing it down. And also in this context, in this vacuum of no state, you know, I keep saying, for example, people talk about Haiti as a failed state. And I always say, well, you have to have a state 
to begin with, right, to have a failed state. There are no institutions per se. There's no legislature. There's no parliament in a parliamentary system. There's no judiciary. We did away with the armed forces. Therefore, there's no real armed force anymore. A police force, which was a success story, in fact, in terms of reconstructing an institution, which has now collapsed. And in the middle of this, what you have is, given the absence of any institutions, civil society has its own manifestation of institutions of order, and those are gangs. This is a country where gangs have filled that vacuum for security. So, you know, it's hard to illustrate anything more dramatic, but uh, the assassination of Jovenel Moise was sort of a culmination of this. Uh, I'll end with this. In May, I've done regular polling in Haiti, so I was being asked to conduct a poll in Haiti now. And the conversations I was having with the people commissioning the poll was that, in fact, there were recurrent threats of assassination against the president and that they were coming from multiple sources. You know, so maybe this was, you know, that chronicle of the death announced that Garcia Marquez, you know, wrote about in a Haitian version. Well, that's a terrific portrait that you painted of the history of the country, the lack of institutions, the instability, the natural disasters, whether earthquake, flooding, failed interventions by uh, the United States. And we know that there were problems with the UN force there. So let me go to you, Professor Leo Grande, to take us to today. Where do we go from here? What is the role of the United States and the international community? And what about the regional institutions? Do they have a role to play in helping this country come back from the brink? Well, I think there has to be an international role. It's clear that, as Eduardo has said, the internal situation is so debilitated at this point politically that there's no functioning governmental institutions in place. There are at least three different people claiming to be the president or to be the legitimate president. So there has to be international assistance on a number of different dimensions. There has to be first international assistance to help stabilize the political situation. International actors can't fix that for Haitians. Haitians will have to do it, but they're going to need some international assistance, it seems to me. And that appears to be what the Biden administration's main strategy is. Second, the country needs desperately additional economic help. And finally, it needs help getting COVID under control. The Haitians are tremendously vulnerable to COVID because of the debilitated healthcare system, because they haven't yet begun a vaccination campaign for the population. And the Delta variant is so strong and spreads so easily that you can already see the numbers in Haiti going up almost exponentially. And in another few months, the situation there could just be really beyond critical. Absolutely. And of course, that's going to affect people beyond its borders as well. So back to you, Professor Gamara. I wonder if you could talk about the Colombian connection. We know about Colombian commandos, and some of them have been actually trained by the U.S. military in Colombia. What do we make of this connection? Well, I think it's probably best to kind of situate this as well in the context of what's been happening throughout the world post-Cold War, the war against terrorism, but also the Plan Colombia. We have this real phenomenon that shows up dramatically in Florida, which is that ex-soldiers come back to the United States and become consultants, and they open up their consulting firms in an industry that, in my view, is completely unregulated. But these are individuals that offer their services around the world, and they're the foot soldiers that they've been using, especially over the last two decades, 
have largely been Colombians. These well-trained Colombian special forces types that, you know, when they leave service, they're unemployed and their pensions are not enough to really sustain their families. So they're being rented out around the world. They've been in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq, and of course, in many places in Latin America as well. And so, of course, why not Haiti? And especially in the context of, you know, this situation of anime that I described, where you have political actors that are in need of protection, but you also have a business community that also sees itself in the need of protection from these gangs. The question, of course, is that Florida connection, the inevitable Florida connection, of course, is these individuals were hired by a Florida firm. Uh, run by a Venezuelan exile who hires them and does so in connection with another exile community, which is the Haitian exile community in South Florida, a gentleman who's kind of, a, uh, in Spanish we would say, is un personaje, right? Full of the messianic complex and everything else. And so this is what we're still trying to understand what happened. But I think really the analysis ought to begin here in the United States, how we can do a better job of regulating the activities of these private military companies that are engaged all over the world in activities that are legal and, as we now know, illegal. It is illegal to go to hire somebody to murder a head of state. Raises a lot of questions. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. My guests are Professor William Leo Grand. He's Associate Vice Provost for Academic Affairs in the Department of Government at American University and Eduardo Gamarra, from whom you just heard. He's Professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University. And we are discussing the roots and ramification of the protests in Cuba and the assassination of Haiti's president. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. But here's a big shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Cosmos Edet from Uyo, the capital of Aqua Ibon State in Nigeria. Thanks for your kind note, Cosmos. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our guests and now back to you, Professor Leo Grand, because we're going to have to move on to Cuba and we'll talk about, you know, the ramifications for the United States of both countries. But I'd like to get your take on the widespread protests that erupted in Cuba. Were you surprised? Uh, Is this a turning point? How do you see it? Well, the Cuban economy is in desperate shape right now, and social tensions have been building over the last year or so. There have been some small outbreaks of this kind of social unrest in specific neighborhoods a couple of times over the past few months. What's really distinctive about these protests is that there were thousands of people involved, not only just in one neighborhood or even in one city, but the biggest apparently in Havana and then in at least a dozen towns and cities around the nation. That's never really happened before since the revolution in 1959. The only thing approximately comparable was a riot on the Havana waterfront in 1994, the last time that the Cuban economy was really in a deep depression. The economy in Cuba has suffered from three major blows, which have been a kind of perfect storm of depression. The first is, of course, the underlying structural problems of that economy because of its inefficient management. And ironically, the government is in the process of trying to make some economic reforms to make the economy more productive. But one of the results of that has been some economic dislocation and runaway inflation that they're suffering right now. 
The second blow was the sanctions that President Trump put on Cuba. Trump's strategy was to really try to cut off all of Cuba's foreign exchange earnings and to starve the economy. So he pressured Latin American countries to kick out Cuban doctors. He tried to interdict oil shipments from Venezuela. He put restrictions on travel to Cuba from the United States and canceled cruise ships. And finally, most importantly, he closed the channel by which most Cuban Americans were able to send remittances to their family members. Then finally, the third blow, of course, was COVID, which closed the Cuban tourist industry, which is still the most important domestic sector of their economy. The result of all of this is that the Cuban economy is broke and the government doesn't have the resources to import food or medicine or fuel for electricity. So you're seeing nothing in the stores, nothing in the pharmacies, electrical blackouts periodically, and people are just fed up with it and fed up with the government's inability to provide the basic necessities of life. And this expansion of social networks and the use of social media over the last two years or so, has given people an opportunity to create social networks independent of the government. It's not legal in Cuba to create an independent voluntary association, but people have been able to connect online. And it turns out that those social networks can be mobilized for real world action. And that's what we saw in these demonstrations. Indeed. And Professor Leo Grand, what is your take on what the United States should do now? We saw the Obama administration open up with Cuba. We had diplomatic relations that was reversed under Trump. And he, as you said, added much more vigorous sanctions. The Biden administration was thinking of maybe reversing Trump's policies on Cuba. But uh, now that we have these widespread protests, he may be in a bind. How can he thread this needle on the one hand, show the Cuban people that we are with them, that is the United States, maybe lifting some remittance restrictions while not antagonizing the hard line or the hawks on Cuba, like some of the Cuban Americans in Florida, and certainly many Republicans? Well, it is a political bind to be sure. But President Biden should understand that no matter what he does on Cuba, Senator Marco Rubio and conservative Republicans are going to attack him for being soft. The president made a statement the other day supporting the protesters in Cuba, expressing solidarity with them and calling on the Cuban government to use restraint in its response. And Marco Rubio still denounced him for not being tough enough. So there's just no way for Democrats to outflank conservative Republicans on the right when it comes to the issue of Florida. When Biden was a candidate, he promised that he would re-engage with Cuba and take a number of steps to reverse Trump sanctions, particularly those that hurt Cuban families. Right now, of course, the policy is under review. It's been under review for almost six months with no action. And now action has become politically more difficult for the administration because it waited for so long. If they do anything to relax any sanctions, they're going to look like they're rewarding the Cuban government at a time when it's repressing demonstrators and dissidents. And yet the humanitarian crisis on the island is really drastic. And so I think what they ought to do is what 
Biden promised he would do during the campaign, lift the sanctions that hurt Cuban families. And at the top of that list has to be remittances and then reopening the consular section of the U.S. Embassy in Havana so Cubans can get immigrant visas and be able to have a safe and legal path to come to the United States rather than having to risk their lives at sea. Very good point, isn't that, Eduardo Gamarra? For President Biden, U.S. policy toward Cuba wasn't among his highest priorities, but just at the moment, something's not a priority. Something comes out from left field, literally. Uh, He's busy with the Afghanistan infrastructure, but he can't ignore this matter. What is your take on how the United States should handle this both domestic and international issue? It's difficult to supplement what Professor Leo Grant has already enumerated. But as we know, in politics, everything is a trade-off, and particularly because we're already in an electoral season, right? And we're facing a very, very intense campaign here in Florida, and this administration is likely concerned about losing both the House and the Senate in 2022. And so, of course, Florida looms very large in that scenario. And especially now from Miami looking at this, when you have highways here being shut down by demonstrations, Cuban Americans shouting, you know, and the mayor of Miami shouting intervention. And the second thing that they're asking is, where's Joe? They don't see the president's statement, which I think was a very strong statement, supporting the people of Cuba, which is where I think we should be. But that's not enough in this community, which sees, by the way, that what is happening in Cuba is a result of the effectiveness of the Trump administration's tightening of the embargo. So as Dr. Leo Grant said, any attempt at not the embargo, but lifting any dimension of it, including the remittances, it's a political minefield, frankly, for this administration. Yet at the same time, I think this administration has to be more present. I think it has a black eye right now. The message they've sent on the one hand is the president's message, and on the other hand, Secretary Mallorca's statement telling the Cubans that if they go into the ocean, they will be returned to Cuba because of the big fear now that we'll have a new Mariel. The circumstances are completely different, but the reality is that this is something that this community is saying. You know, how can you be so inhumane and say that you're going to send back Cubans fleeing communism and at the same time, have a president who says he's standing with the people. So no matter what this administration says, it's going to be seen through this filter. The way in which the Cubans have been handling this is the traditional kind of Soviet-style response, massive repression. And they've also managed to orchestrate a very modern response, which is to get the president of Argentina, the president of Venezuela, the president of Bolivia, the president of Nicaragua, to essentially say, this is all the result of the embargo, you know, 62 years of the embargo. Professor Leo Grand, one last word from you on the role of diaspora communities. Eduardo was talking about the Cuban-American community, but at the same time, the Haitians are also a diaspora. They're also involved, implicated in this unfortunate turn of events in Haiti. Well, the Cuban government has been using the embargo as an excuse for decades now to explain away its economic problems. And of course, the embargo has been part of its economic problems. So it makes it a credible argument for a lot of Cubans. In terms of the domestic politics of this, there's always been a real contrast, I think, between the Cuban diaspora and the Haitian diaspora. The Haitians just have not been as well organized and as wealthy and politically adept, if you will, as the Cuban exile community has been really since about 1980. And so they haven't been able to exert the same kind of political influence that the Cuban Americans have been able to wage. Now, what's interesting, though, is that President 
President Obama, rather than trying to appeal to more conservative Cuban Americans by taking a hard line on Cuba, which is what Bill Clinton did, President Obama instead decided he would try to appeal to the more moderate wing of the community because the community is heterogeneous. It's not all of one mind. And that was fairly successful. President Obama said, I'll re-engage with Cuba and I'll do things that allow you to have better connections to your family on the island. And he won 35 percent of the Cuban-American vote in 2008, more than any other Democrat had won, and almost half of the Cuban-American vote in 2012. By the end of his administration, a majority of Cuban-Americans supported his policy of engagement. I think the mistake the Biden administration has made is ignoring the issue rather than having a proactive approach to it and going out to a moderate constituency in South Florida, which is there, and trying to mobilize them in favor of a policy that makes more foreign policy sense. Gentlemen, I hope we can continue this conversation at a later date. There's so much more to discuss, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, William Leo Grand. He's Associate Vice Provost for Academic Affairs at the American University here in Washington, and Eduardo Gamarra, Professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on the Voice of America.